0: So this evening, I would like to talk about a few things. And first, I would like to look at the basis. Because uh, some of you have done this kind of retreat before. Some of you have done different retreats, different meditation. And so I think what is important that, of course, this is a Zen retreat. And this is a Zen retreat Korean style, which is a little different from Chinese Zen style or Japanese Zen <laughs> style. And it should actually be called Korean son. And that's the way they would like it to be known. Because <laughs> it's just the same pronunciation. Chinese is Chan. Korean is son. And Japanese is Zen, but Zen is what became part of the language. But the word means the same thing, and it just means meditation. So, Zen meditation is meditation, meditation. So, but you see, uh, what I think is important is that you have different Buddhist meditation. You have meditation you find like in the Theravada tradition, which is also called Vipassana tradition or inside tradition. You have the Zen tradition. You have uh, also different type of meditation in the Zen tradition. Can everybody hear me? Okay. And then you also have, of course, Tibetan meditation, then many other things. And so personally, what I find important is not to say Zen meditation is the best, is the only way to do things, but it's one way to practice, and other ways to practice are very good too. And I also, what I find important is to look at what is common actually to all these meditation techniques. What is common? Because often there can be this tendency for competition. My toy is better than yours type of thing. My meditation is better than your meditation. My method. And generally that's a little how it's presented to us. You know, this one is more complete. This one is more pure. And generally the Zen one is more direct. But if you read the stories, it takes them as long as anybody else, you know, years and years of practice. So it's possibly more direct, but it doesn't mean it's faster. Because often that's what we think more direct, shortcut, I'll get there faster. I don't think so. But if we look at what is the ground of all these practices, And also, which I think is as important, what is the ground and what makes meditation work? Because you could have the ground, but so what? Does it make a difference? Because in a way, this is what the path of the Buddha is about. is what we do when we cultivate meditation, helping us, to be wiser, to be more compassionate, to be more stable, to be more open, to be more quiet, to be more clear. It doesn't mean that this is going to make us perfect. That I think is not what this is about. So what is the ground? And how the ground, the common ground We can find, in these different practices, how does it make a difference? How does it work? And for this reason, up to now, people have been keeping meditating. And nowadays, meditation is becoming a little like, uh, not magic, but mindfulness is seen as being very, very, very good. And it's good. But again, I would be careful, it's not magic. It's helpful. For some people, some of the time. So let's look at the ground. Basically, what we're going to cultivate in different ways during this retreat, which is basically to cultivate samatha and vipassana. And so one might think samatha, S A M A T H A, and vipassana, V I P A S S -S A N A that these two words are actually belonging to the Theravada tradition, to the Vipassana tradition, to the inside tradition. We've got Samatha and Vipassana. Nobody else has. But it's not true. In a way, because you find Samatha and Vipassana in the Zen tradition, tomorrow I'll bring you some quotes which are so very interesting in connection to that and the same you have uh, Shinne and lacton also in the tibetan tradition and this is something my teacher used to tell us again and again you must keep these two things these two things together you must cultivate these two things together when we meditate so you have samatha samatha often is translated as concentration Or it's translated as calm. And here we have to see that each term can refer actually to the cultivation of something and to the effect of that cultivation. So concentration is what we cultivate. But the effect of concentrating, cultivating concentration is to develop calm. Same with Vipassana. Often, one could say, the literal translation is looking deeply. But often it's translated as insight. (laughs) Looking deeply is a cultivation. Insight is an effect, one could say. But then if it's insight meditation, then it's like, where is your insight, you know? Today you meditated all day. I should have an insight by now. <laughs> so you have these two aspects, and this is two qualities that we have. It's not something foreign. We all have the ability to concentrate, to focus. And personally I prefer to use the word anchor because often we have a strange reaction to the word concentration. When we think, I must concentrate, and possibly you thought that several times today. You know, you were trying to sit, be aware of the breath, and you were thinking about everything but the breath, and you might concentrate. And if you say that to yourself, concentrate, generally it's a little tense, Generally it's like, you know, you're doing something wrong, you're not concentrating, so you must concentrate. And generally we tighten, we tense around. We have this kind of nearly physical thing. When we think just of the term, concentrate. It's like, you know, we we kind of generally like we need to squeeze ourselves into a tomato concentrate paste, you know. <laughs> Like we are a little blobby, we need to be a little more dense, a little more like the tube of tomato paste. But actually not. We don't need to become like the tomato paste. But we need, in a way that's why we do the meditation, it would be helpful to cultivate in such a way that we feel more stable, that we feel more spacious, That we feel more quiet. And this is what the concentration is about. That actually it's not a tensing of something. It's more like an anchor. So for example, today, we use a breath as an anchor. So something in our experience which we could anchor in. But see... What is an anchor? You have a boat, which is either in the port, but maybe at sea, near the coast, and it's anchored. What that means is that the boat does not stay there and is unmoving. What it means is that the boat moves a bit, but it's not taking away at sea. So it moves a bit, but within a very kind of, you know, relatively. Circumscribe area. And this is the same with us in meditation. The anchoring that it be with the breath or with the question I will introduce tomorrow or with the listening which we'll introduce later on. The anchor, the function of the anchor is not that the breath is sacred or the question or the listening. (laughs) but that it's a useful anchor. And look, this is what is really interesting with the anchor, with the breath. Is that you try to pay attention to the breath, then you go away, then you come back to the breath, and actually by coming back to the breath, you come back also to the whole moment to the whole experience. Because generally, when we go away, where do we go? We go because of certain thoughts, we go because of certain feeling, of certain sensation in the body. And generally, we extrapolate, we proliferate, we amplify. And generally, we go into abstraction, a story we stood on association with the past or association with the future. And actually, we are not really here. We're just partly here. But if we come back to the breath, we come back to the whole moment. I saw this very clearly many years ago with the questioning. I was doing the questioning and it was raining. And we were in in a room, in a hall, where you could really hear the rain on the roof. And what I noticed was that when I was with the questioning, what is this, what is this, I was at the same time very aware of the sound of the rain. But when I was somewhere else, daydreaming or whatever, planning or whatever, I did not hear the sound of the rain as soon as I came back to the question, I came back to the sound of the rain. So this is one of the things about the anchoring. Like the boat, you don't go too far. And then by not going too far, you can be more in your experience. But more in your experience in a different way. That's what I would call a more spacious way. And so one side thing to that is that, I don't know, you might have noticed today that there were different sounds. We heard some farming implements working, we heard the rooks. we heard the birds, we heard some insects, we heard some coughing, some creaking, some breathing, and you might have thought, possibly, I can't meditate. There is too much noise. Hmm. But whenever you heard the sounds, you were here. And actually, to see all these sounds, like when we are here in February, it's much more quiet. And actually, it's much more difficult to be awake because we're more easily lost in the thought. But here you have all this opportunity of this balance of mindfulness, the bird, the farm implement, the coughing, the creaking, whatever. It's an opportunity to come back to the anchor, to the breath, to the question. So really, personally I was really enjoying today. Because it was really helping me to be more anchored. So there was, yes, the anchor of the breath, so it's like you have the, in the foreground, you have the anchor of the breath, and then the sounds actually making a wider anchor. And then having these two anchors, then you actually can have the thought, the feeling, the sensations arise and pass away. And it becomes easier not to be so caught by them. Because, as I said before, you might have noticed today what we think generally is fairly repetitive. So since it's fairly repetitive, maybe we don't need so much to think it right now. Doesn't mean that you stop thinking about it. No, 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 no. But maybe not as much, possibly. And this is one of the functions of anchoring, of concentration. It's not, it's really not to stop the thought. But it's actually, I would nearly say to dissolve over time, unnecessary thinking, which often is quite tiring, sometimes nervous making. And so what we do, is that we start with the breath and then we go off, for example, with the thought. Then, oh, we remember, we come back. Then we go again. We remember, we come back. And when we do this, this is actually concentration. It's not that we stay all the time, but that we come back. Each time we come back, We are doing two things. We are not feeding the patterns of the thought. We're dissolving their power, and then they can go back to their creative functioning. So if I need to plan, if I need to imagine, I can. But I am not obsessed by it. I am not overwhelmed by it. I am not overtaken by it. And so in a way, that's why the concentration, the anchoring helps us to become more spacious insofar that there is more space around the thoughts, for example, and also take it back to the creative functioning so that we can still think but we have more creativity with it. And it's very interesting. Recently, they did some, because they're doing lots of studies at the moment about mindfulness and meditation how does it work, how does it work on the brain, and things of that nature. But one thing I found interesting was well they did this study. And what were they studying was, because at the moment, they doing study on the restful state of the brain. But the thing is, they've realized that the restful state of the brain is not restful. For most people, it's actually rather restless. So they wanted to see how was the restful state of the brain of people who had meditated for a long time, meditated for a little time, and different things like this. But then, when they did the study, they realized that the one who had meditated a long time, their restful state was really restful. It didn't mean that they could not think When when they were in the machine. They could hear the noise, they could know they were in the machine, they could know they were part of the study. But they did not need to think unnecessarily about themselves. Because if we notice, to me this was in a way what I would say my first insight was when I meditated early on to see for the first time how many years ago all my thoughts, most of them, were about me. But they were kind of about me, they were about describing myself, they were about what do people think about me, what do I think about myself. And so in a way, you have different discourses. We are like what I would call this self-referencing discourse. And then we have what I would call a creative functioning discourse. And in a way the meditation helps us to let go over time of so much self-referencing. We don't have to tell ourselves our story all the time. We don't have to worry what other people think all the time. We can just creatively function. And I think that's part of the function of the concentration is gently, 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 not judging the thought, but in a way helping us to make the choice. Do I need to think this right now? Maybe I could go back to the breath. I could go back to the whole moment. I am not 10 years ago. Maybe something terrible happened 10 years ago, but I'm not there. I am here right now. And here, hopefully, nothing terrible is happening. And I'm not a year later, where, I mean, possibly something terrible could happen, but it's not happening now. So, in a way, can we learn to be in what is happening now? And see that, of course, some of the time it's difficult but a lot of the time it's quite okay. And can I learn to be with that? Can I know that? Can, In a way, can I know my creative functioning in terms of the thought, in terms of the heart, in terms of the body? And I feel that's what the concentration is very much about. Coming back to that. And then, so that through that, we develop over time quietness, more spaciousness in the mind and in the body and heart, and more stability. To me, this is one of the important things. I know you're sitting in meditation, you're walking in meditation and you might think, you know, you know you thought this meditation would be relaxing, mm-hmm. but it's hard work. you know it's. You feel, you know, at times you have a like, kind of little like energy going down. This is hard work. And at the same time, it nearly like, in a strange way, it produces its own energy in a different way. And so it also helps us to be more stable and to find a place within ourselves where we can feel that stability. So, that when something maybe shocking or exhilarating or agitating happens, we can still feel it. But we're not overly agitated. We can, in a way, be with it because we cultivate that stable place within ourselves. And I think that's where retreat is very much about developing this nearly physical, mental, emotional stability within ourselves, which then can become a refuge in our daily life. And then you have the other quality we cultivate, which is vipassana. And vipassana, you could say, looking deeply, vipassana, vi means anti antisent, intensifier and pasana means to see so to see deeply but you could also say experiential inquiry so an inquiry which is not so much about thinking about things but it's more using the brightness of the mind to go inside the experience What is this experience? I mean, we heard lots of sounds today. And I wonder if when there was a sound, which was going on a bit, you might not have thought, I mean, this is lasting a long time. I mean, why is he kind of, you know, mowing the lawn, or what's going on, and are they going to make so much noise every day? I'm not going to be able to stand it. This is too noisy, or whatever it might be. But what did we see? All the sounds we heard today, they came and they went. And this is what experiential inquiry is about. Because we have a tendency to permanentize. We have a tendency to generalize which is again a very useful function. But if we do it too much, then it's complicated because it makes us kind of like, oh, this is happening, which means it will happen all the time. You might have some pain, and it's possible that if you continue to sit on the floor, it will continue. But it will not continue in the same way. And I think this is what is uh, interesting with the pain. Like in Korea, I used to sit 10 hours a day, you know, 50 minutes, five, zero, and then 10 minutes walking, two times, three times, four times, two times. And in the morning, I was really good. I would sit, you know, in those days, I was still agile and I could sit, you know, in half lotters. Yes, yes, I can do this. And then by the end of the evening, the last sitting was like agony, because we had two sitting for 50 minutes after the light evening meal. And the last one was like ah but sometime with the last one if I went inside the sensation I would actually experience the emptiness of it. And all the time it was like the 50 minutes lasted a week. And I knew the next morning I would be fine. And then the next evening I would be with the pain. And what I realized is that yeah. It comes and it goes. And so with the pain, I think what is important to see is that when you stand up, if the pain continues through when you go walking, when you eat, then you really need to change posture. This is very important. We don't want you to hurt yourself. But if you sit in meditation and after you know fifteen minutes it starts to be a little uncomfortable at the end, a little no, and then especially toward the third sitting of the session, then it's circumstance, it's conditional. And if you stand up, it's fine, then it's okay. But of course, if you want to sit in a chair, this is fine too. As I said, you can add some chair here, some chair there, some chair at the back. So you don't have to suffer unduly. But also it can be interesting to, to be with the experience that sometimes you sit and you have no pain. And sometimes you sit and there is pain. And how can I be with it? And this is also why we do the walking meditation. So that you, know, you can walk and then the pain can more easily go, hopefully. But then it's also interesting. We do the walking meditation together here, and by now you must have noticed that actually they are different speed. You know? And to me, this walking together indoors is very much actually about mindfulness and compassion and adaptability. Because you never know when suddenly the pace goes faster, and then suddenly it goes slower. And in a way, to walk together here, we have to be aware. You cannot just... You have to actually be very aware of the person in front of you, of the pace that's being set. And to me, this is what is beautiful. Because generally, when we walk in daily life, we walk at my pace, my speed. And here I go. My poor mother, now she's 87, and so she goes much slower. When she was even 60, she used to be like that. you know. And I used to be as fast. We're all quite fast. But now she's older, she can't walk fast. And so I put my speed to her speed. And so here that's what we do. We adapt. I think it's very important to see that what we cultivate when we look deeply is not just about us. It's also in a way it's to look deeply and to become aware of what is going on. But what is going on in a wise and compassionate way? So there is this what we do that it be the concentration, that it be the looking deeply. It's not just so that we become the best concentrated person, or the best inquiry person. But by doing that, this gives us opportunity to develop, to experience wisdom and compassion. And when we do the walking together, that's what I feel is happening. We're actually cultivating wisdom and compassion as we walk, adapting to whatever speed is happening. And what you can see is that often you think, I must be wise, I must be compassionate. And it's kind of like, I am going to engineer it. But actually not. When we do the walking, it just happens. We just adapt naturally, to the pace. And it's nearly like we become an organism. And it's not my pace or your pace, it's just what happens. And within that, we can see that it changes. And so we adapt to the changes. And so we flow with the changes. And this is, in a way, what this looking deeply is about the experiential inquiry is in a way to be more in tune with the way things arise and disappear. Instead of immediately thinking this is going to last forever, I am stuck. I mean, you might have a tendency to think a certain way, to feel a certain way, to have certain sensations. But notice, I mean, this is what... This retreat is really an opportunity to do that. Notice, it changes. The most obsessive thought, at some point, it also changes. The most heavy feeling, at some point, it changes too. Same with sensation. Especially if we don't grasp at it. If we don't identify with it, and that's where then it becomes part of this inquiry is to notice. Sometimes I have this possibly negative reaction to my thought, or my feeling or my sensation. Sometimes I might be totally caught in them. And sometimes, they just happen. You have a thought? It comes, it goes. You have a sensation, it comes, it goes. You have a feeling, it comes, it goes. And you can accompany it without identifying with it. Because what we can notice is that if we identify with it, generally we make a story, we make association, and generally we amplify. And I think, in a way, part of the meditation process is to simplify, but simplifying doesn't mean simplistic, doesn't mean bare-bore, that then everything is going to (coughs) be the same. Because what I feel we're doing when we look deeply, when we experientially inquire, we're more in tune with fluidity, with the possibility of choices. Because often we feel stuck. And to me, this is what will help us here. If we look deeply, if we're really in the sensation, in the feeling, in the thought, in what is going on now, then we become more clear. And that's what the inquiry is about. We become more clear about what's going on. But also we become more open about what's going on. Because often we're quite stuck and fixed. I am like this, this is like that. But actually not. We change. We move from morning to evening, from one sitting Beginning of it, end of it, from one walking. It's interesting, walking together. Personally, I find it really rewarding. I am the type of person who walks fast, or is often, I get out of a plane and I walk so fast. Steven is like, (laughs) he's taller than me, and I'm way, way ahead. But to me, this is a great practice just to walk. To follow everybody's pace. Instead of, it must be like this. It must always be like this. Because we quickly go that way. And instead to become more open. And then you have the two qualities. You have the stability with the openness. You have the quietness with the clarity. So you have something which is very alive. And to me that's what we're doing when we develop these two qualities. We're actually developing creative awareness, creative mindfulness, which then will help us to creatively engage with our life. This is not like about becoming like automaton, the perfect meditator or the perfect Buddhist but really become more who we can be. And so what we're doing is very gently, gently, without battling, but being dedicated, being determined to just, yeah, I can do this. I can experience this. And then this is something I can take in my daily life. And so the way I see what we're doing is kind of, in a way, making things less amplified, less complicated, less problematic, in a way. And then there is space for creatively engaging with whatever arises. And then from that, our Ability to be wise, our ability to be compassionate, being able to come out, because it's not fixed, it's not impeded, it's not stopped. And because it can be more creative, it is creatively responsive to things which are joyous or to things which are difficult. Recently, I had this uh, thing. I live in a house, I live upstairs, my mother lives downstairs. And so, you know, I kind of try to leave her as independent as she can. And then, time to time, I check and help, and she asks me things. And then, a few months back, I was sleeping and I heard some noise. And normally, I should not hear noise from her because she's way on the other side of the house. So finally I went to investigate. And in the middle of the night, I found her covered in blood. And it was like being in NCIS, you know, there was blood on the wall, she had blood everywhere, and I kept finding blood, and I was like, wait a minute, but what helped me then was just to be stable and to be open. And so the first thing I did was, hey, just take care of her and look, actually the blood was dried, so I thought, okay, she's not bleeding anymore, and so it must be, I could not see anything, so I thought it's just the cranium. And she was tired, and she wanted to rest, so I thought, she seemed okay, I'm not going to call the emergency, she seemed relatively okay, though it's a bit weird, all this blood everywhere. One is not used to that. So I brought, cleaned her a bit, brought her back to sleep. And then when I go to the room, there is more blood on the wall and things like that. I said, okay, she goes to sleep, I'll take care of it the next day. And then the next day I had the doctor and, and she was okay in the end. But what can help me then? Not to panic or to, just to be there for her. To be kind, to be stable, to be open, to be creative. And not to think this is going to happen every day forever after. Because it did not. It happened because she took two uh, sleeping pills instead of one. And she generally hallucinated when that happened. So now we very firm, only one every night. And so. But it's true. Afterward, I was a little kind of uh, awake at night. And then it passed because I could see, did not happen again, did not happen again, did not happen again. So what I was checking was change. Because immediately we have the tendency to think, it's going to happen again, it's going to happen again. But not. This is what I observed, that something might happen again, but they don't happen all the time. And then if you don't do this then you're less anxious, you're less fearful, and also more creative, more compassionate, but more compassionate in a wise way. And I think that's what we're trying to do here during this retreat, actually building, developing the muscles of creative awareness, the muscles of wisdom, of compassion. So, that's what I wanted to say. Are there any questions or comments? I have one question. Um, going back to um, pain, Martin, uh, I'm not entirely clear whether pain's good or bad. I mean, there, there's some schools of Buddhism that think that you know when you get great pain when you meditate, it's some kind of release of your old samsara, you know, your conditioning. They seem to think it has some value. I'm slightly dubious about that. But I mean, it's, you know, sometimes you can sort of work through a pain barrier. Is mean, there a benefit to that? And I tend to think that if your mind is so full of pain, it doesn't really help you meditate, generally. But, uh... Personally, I think there is enough pain in the world, you don't need to necessarily add to it. So, no, personally, I don't believe... I know that there is a school of thought which believe what you just described. Personally, I am also not convinced by it, but why not? People might find that in their life with that technique. Personally, I would say meditation can help us in some ways to be with pain, but the pain must not be too intense for too long. Because if the pain is too intense for too long, then it puts you on nerve, then you have a bad association with the pain. And because you have a different energy through the day, sometimes you sit and you have discomfort, you can be with it. At other times, you don't have the energy to just be with it. And that's why I said, you know, if as you sit, like if you sit for 30 minutes, and for the first 20 minutes, you don't have nearly no pain and only the last 10 is a little painful, then it's relatively okay if that's what you want to do. But if as soon as you sit, you're in agony for the next 25 minutes, then I think it's not helpful. And that's why I think then it's better if one can to sit on a chair. I know for myself, I sat for many years on the floor and I'm not somebody who can sit so easily and so I would have pain and at some level it was helpful to learn to be with pain in different ways and at the same time when I got sciatica so badly I could not sit on the floor anymore and then I started to sit on a chair, I thought, hmm, this is nice. (laughs) So this is for you to see. Some people prefer to sit on the floor even though it's a little painful some people don't have so much pain. But personally, I would not encourage you to be in agony. That I don't think personally is a good idea. So I would, I would say, basically, if we, when we sit in meditation and we have pain, I think we need to bring a wise and compassionate attitude to it. Which might means, actually, not to sit on the floor. But again, it depends on one body. Some people, if you have some ailment, you don't want to aggravate them. It's back to what I said, if when you get up, it continues, you have to do something. If when you get up, it does not, then it's okay as long as it's not too painful too much of the time. Yes? Would you um, (coughs) recommend a particular focus of attention during the walking meditation so during the walking meditation personally i would either recommend to be aware of the body and then you can either be aware of the body of the feet touching the ground or you can be aware of the leg moving or you can be aware more of the rhythm the rhythm of the body walking and at the same time you know, being aware of the, the group walking. Tomorrow I will introduce the question, what is this? And that also I find quite a good method. So as you walk, to just say, what is this? What is this in rhythm with the walk? I find that works quite well, but then it's for you to see. The, the bottom line is, whatever I use, does it help me to be relatively focused and relatively aware? And so that so if being aware of the feet touching the floor works, that otherwise the legs, otherwise the rhythm, otherwise the question. Some people use a breath, again it's basically what works. So, Personally, I am a multi choice teacher, and I would say try things out. Use a retreat to try things out. If I do this, does it seem to make a difference? But make it experiential, not kind of intellectual, what you read or whatever. But let me try this with the feet, you know, for 10 minutes. Then you can try something else and see does it make a difference or not? Or what? Comes naturally. That's also what I would trust. Where does my focus go? Where does my attention go? I would also trust that. Yes? Um, what are your views um, in regards to eyes open versus eyes shut? So, this is a thing. In the Theravada Vipassana tradition, They say if you don't close your eyes, you will never be able to awaken. In the Zen tradition, they say if you close your eyes, forget it, you will never awaken. And in the Dzogchen tradition, in the Tibetan Buddhism, they say you must have your eyes wide open. And personally I think, again, what works? I would recommend is first what works for you. Do you naturally close your eyes, do you naturally have them half open? If you do that, trust that. If you feel sleepy, I would not recommend to close the eyes, because if you close the eyes and you're sleepy, you're going to be even more sleepy. So then if you feel sleepy, especially in the afternoon, I would recommend Open the eyes, and generally, personally, I look up a bit. So I keep my head straight, but I look up a bit, and generally that seems to wake me up a bit. And then once i am woken up, again, either I close the eyes, or personally I've been trained the Zen way, so generally I have my eyes half closed, gazing gently in front of me. So you must not f- focus, you just gaze. But again, it's what works. I think if you're agitated, sometimes it's good to close the eyes. So I think it depends on what works for you, and also it depends on the condition. But I don't think that any of them is sacred. It's just what works for the moment. Thank you for listening.